Okay. C.S. Lewis Knight, Mr. Clive Staples. Born November 29th, 1898 in Belfast, Ireland. Yes. How come there are no cookies or brownies here? Because Bridget's not here. Another question? Uh, no, I was just going to fuck up the cold water. Ask Ron what he wanted. Oh, I was asking about cookies or brownies. Oh, okay. He, Ron wanted to know this is going to be a really long night. Maybe we should just do that. You're sitting by the door, Pastor Mike. And I know. I, that was it. I'm done. He was born November 29th, 1898, in Belfast, Ireland, which is strange. I actually learned that. I just thought he was always British, but he wasn't. Um, he actually thought the English accent was terrible, and England was very ugly. Um, he died November 22nd, 1963, along with someone else on that day that Ron Breland cannot answer. No, he can't, because it's his favorite thing to talk about in the world, besides the Nephilim. Kennedy. 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 You are correct. And, and, and I don't know, somebody else. Huxley. 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 Sure. Yes. So the news of his death was kind of overshadowed by JFK. But nonetheless, it was the same day. He was best known as a theology and apologetics writer. He was also one of the most uh, foremost experts in literature. So his background, just about Mr. Lewis. His mother died when he was nine. His father never remarried. He bounced between several different boarding schools, four of them. And this was where his emerging atheism was confirmed and was confirmed and his reasoning powers were refined in an extraordinary way. So not only did his atheism kind of come to fruition during these times in the boarding schools, he also started to sharpen his reasoning powers as well. He went on to a school, little known school named Oxford, which, by the way, how many of these people that we have talked about gone to Oxford and or Cambridge, right? Maybe they were the only schools that <laughs> there probably wasn't that many, right? But Oxford, for crying out loud. He went at 18, but before he could actually start studies, the uh, war broke out. He joined the army in February. He was wounded, and he returned back to England to recover. And he resumed studies at Oxford in January 1919 and graduated in 1925 and went right into teaching at Oxford as a teaching fellow. And again, he's probably the world's foremost authority on medieval English literature. One called him the best read man of his generation. Lewis told a story in uh, Surprised by Joy, which if, if you want to read some Lewis, read some Surprised by Joy, of his childhood and just how many books were all over the house. It was an enormous house that his family moved into. But there was just so many books, and that's literally what he would do. Just as a kid, he would just read books. Um, he was also a massively prolific author. We have many titles that you probably know, Surprised by Joy, Mere Christianity, The Weight of Glory, um, Little Thing Called The Chronicles of Narnia, The Screwtape Letters. Anybody read C.S. Lewis, by the way? Don't be afraid to raise your hands, people, or not raise your hands. It's okay. Uh, Chronicles of Narnia sold over 100 million copies in 40, 40 languages. It's insane. He moved on from Oxford to Cambridge as a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature in 1955. He married very late. He married Joy Davidman in 1956. She died of cancer before their fourth anniversary. And three and a half years later, Mr. Lewis died as well of a bunch of different things.
Okay, so that's some background. Yes, Ronald. Joy, uh, Joy Davidman started off as a fan. Mm. She would write letters to Clive Staples. Really? He started a correspondence for a very long time before they actually met. He brought her over, I think, from America. I don't know where, but... Huh? So it's really interesting development later in his life that he, he found love. Follow-up question. Is that how Rhoda ended up with you? Hmm. Yes, I'm yes. a prolific author, and she wrote me letters. She wrote you letters, fan letters. Actually, Ron was a fan of me. <laughs> That's, That's very accurate. <laughs> Still am. Fan, stalker, how do you, what's the line there? Yeah. Okay. So some key life themes. Uh, first and foremost, boy, do we have a conversion story in C.S. Lewis. Uh, sometimes in some of the people we've looked at in our midweek series, they've kind of not really had that uh, great of a conversion story. Some of them had a dramatic conversion story. Lewis's conversion, I'm not sure I would call all that dramatic as far as boom, it happened in one moment. But there was certainly a progression uh, for his conversion. He progressed really from nominal Christianity in his youth to atheism in the boarding schools to theism after the war and then full-blown Christian theism as a follow-up uh, after the war. So his upbringing, he said, was not special, but it was generically religious. He said he was taught the usual things and made to say my prayers in due time taken to church. I naturally accepted what I was told, but I cannot remember feeling much interest in it. That's what he said. So during his youth, especially at the boarding school, he started to embrace atheism. And as a young poet, he questioned the existence of God as a myth, he said, which must be resisted. Hello, Menzels. Hello. He lived like so many other atheists. He said, I maintained good God did not exist. I was also very angry at him for not existing. I was equally angry with him for creating a world. So he lived with that tension that his mind kind of knew something couldn't, he just couldn't really give himself over to complete atheism, but he still just resisted and refused at that time to embrace faith in God. He shifted to uh, theism after the war, getting back to Oxford in the first couple of years. He embraced what he referred to in um, Surprised by Joy as his new look which was a, a theistic look, that there's something at the center of the universe. He, again, then it's kind of a, another stepping stone, but he refused to call it God. He's like, okay, step two, there's got to be something that's controlling all this. There's got to be something at the middle of it. It's just far too complex, far too beautiful. There are things that I feel that just can't be explained. So there is something. I just refuse to call it God. Lewis fought very hard to stand on a thin piece of ground where it could be anything but God. He wanted to get, he thought, all the conveniences of theism without actually having to believe in God. He said there was one divine attribute, that of necessary existence, meaning, again, that there has to be something. Like, all of this requires that there has to be something in the middle of it. He could not get that out of his head. There has to be a purpose it rose above his horizon, he said. It was still and long after attached to the wrong subject. Hi. It was attached to the universe and not to God. But the mere attribute itself was of immense potency. So he could not get that out of his head, that there had to be something there. Yes, Ron? What he outlines in um, Mere Christianity, some of the logical reasoning, he puts out, he says, well, I happen to thirst, 
and there happens to be such a thing as water. Yep. I happen to have you know, sexual desire and longing, and there happens to be a union of marriage. Yep. So if I have these longings for another worldly place, it's logical to say that yep. there exists another plane. Absolutely. We'll get there for sure. Oh, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> it's bound to happen. There's so many quotes. This is what he said, though, because he knew something was at work. He actually knew that the Lord was calling him to himself, and he wrote rather poetically, of course. And so the great angler played his fish, and I never dreamed the hook was in my tongue. And he capitalized the A in angler, because he knew that God was setting the hook and reeling him in. He was just still fighting it. Finally, he embraced full-blown Christianity a couple years later. He said God continued to set the hook and he ran into more and more Christians and, of course, read more and more books. He happened to meet another man named Neville Coghill, which, if you want to have a British name, I think that might win the contest. That's wonderful. Neville Coghill. <laughs> I soon had the shock of discovering that he, clearly the most intelligent and best-informed man of the class, was a Christian and a thoroughgoing supernaturalist. So he met a man that he deeply respected in class, and to his horror, he found out this man was a Christian. He read more and more, and he said, quote, all the books were beginning to turn against me. And he said, the most alarming of all, you guys will like this very, very much, the most alarming man of all he read was George Herbert. Whoa. Remember George Herbert from a few weeks ago, our poet? Mm -hmm. Talk about the depth of his poetry and the skill of his poetry. When somebody, a literary expert like C.S. Lewis, starts reading George Herbert and then realizes that George Herbert is pointing to God, it just stopped him in his tracks. Um, yeah, wrong book. I knew that was going to happen. Let's see. 261. Let's see if we can get a Herbert quote. He says, But the most alarming of all was George Herbert. Here was a man who seemed to me to excel all the authors I had ever read in conveying the very quality of life as we actually live it from moment to moment. But the wretched fellow, instead of doing it directly, insisted on mediating through what I still would have called the Christian mythology. So again, he was, he was angry. He loved George Herbert. He respected George Herbert, but he was angry that he didn't do it out of just this purity of his skill. He pointed back to the Christian myth as the center of it. Um, he made other friends who were Christians. One of them was another fellow named J.R.R. Tolkien. What? <laughs> and he said again, about the Lord reeling him in, he said, my adversary has begun to make his final moves. So he knew that when he met J.R.R. Tolkien, his days were numbered. <laughs> he would give in soon. And let's see a little bit of his, his famous conversion quote, which you may have uh, read. He said, you must picture me alone in the room in Magdalene, which was uh, his campus at Oxford. Night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even from a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting, unrelenting approach of him whom I earnestly desired not to meet. Love that. <laughs> that which I greatly feared had come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted God was God and knelt and prayed. And perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England 
Who can duly adore, adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who had, was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in any and every direction for a chance of escape? It wasn't that moment where the, the kind of the scales fell off, but it was a moment where he was, he said another place, how are you? He said another place, dragged across the threshold. God had finally uh, made his move and he gave in and actually uh, became a Christian. So what do we think? Some observations maybe from Mr. Lewis's conversion story. Quite a uh, progression there, right? This wasn't a, uh, hey, I went on a youth group retreat, retreat and they had rock band and lasers and I threw a stick in the fire and signed a card and now I'm a Christian. What things stood out about his conversion progression or what things can we learn or be encouraged from that? Roro. Well, I was just thinking one of the most common things that my acquaintance with atheist arguments is is that Christianity is for the uneducated and Christianity is something for the weak-minded. Yes. But I am amazed at historically how many scholars and academics and well-read and well-educated people yeah. end up claiming the claim of the Christian faith, which we now sometimes get accused of as being weak-minded. Yeah, absolutely. He was certainly not, as we'll look at in a little while, just an emotional, shallow Christian who needed God as a crutch, right? He researched this, and he was a very smart man, and he was uh, a very, very um, he was expert, of course, at literature and all of that. Other thoughts? What about the relationship or the witness of us as believers, wherever we are? We've already seen a couple examples, right? Tolkien. What was this guy's name? Nigel Tufnell? No. Neville, oh, Neville Coghill. Neville Coghill. <laughs> Thank you for whoever laughed at that, right? What does that say about where we are, our relationships, our legitimacy as our witness? Our Ronald has a chance of being a good witness. <laughs> what were you going to say, Frank? Um, in our study in Hebrews, one of the authors had said uh, uh, the closest many people get to read the Bible is looking at our lives mm -hmm. as an example. Yeah. And we can really do a great job or we can blow it. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> what about as um, our friend Neville Coghill, right? <coughs> Lewis had such tremendous respect for him. Yeah, and apparently he, yeah, he saw God shine through him. Yeah. His radiance uh, shown through him yeah. as an example. Well, what did Lewis see first, though, in him? What did he respect in him at first as a fellow student, right? You called him the most brilliant student in the class, right? Yeah, his knowledge, his knowledge right? And he was horrified and, to find out he was a Christian. Talent, right? Yeah. So whatever, we, whatever we're doing, let's be the best at it, right? Let's be the best employees. Let's be the best... Students, let's be the best whatever, wherever we are, the best in our profession. That in and of itself is a tremendous witness, and then you put that together with actual faith that is backed up by our lives. That's a hugely powerful witness. And it's interesting how, <clears throat> how against God he was when he started out. Yeah. You know, so in that being the case... You know, just because you meet somebody who seems totally against God yeah. doesn't mean that you have no effect on them, you yeah. know, in things that you 
may say or do or your interactions with that person. Yeah. What does it say for us in our own questions? Yeah. Should we shy away from them and just, you know, sing the songs and just try to believe and feel happy? <laughs> no, we should research those yeah. things yeah. and dig in. Booth um, didn't back down. Yeah, yeah, definitely not. We see the sovereignty of God and salvation because right. he was dragged and kicking and screaming. Him dig but <laughs> deeper, more uh, every time he got. Yeah. We can't be afraid to push on biblical truth. Yep. We need to push on it. If it's true, it's not going to move. Right. Right? Uh, I've heard plenty of deconversion stories, right, for people who uh, are deconverting from poor representations of Christianity. Right? Yeah. From uh, something that happened to them at church or a pastor who was teaching false theology or something that wasn't an authentic witness. Like, plenty of people run away from that, but they're not running away from the real thing. I've yet to find someone who really gave himself to the study of Christianity and all of it and then walked away and said, meh, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. And I think that just shows the proof of God's word, the truth of it, the depth of it. Like if you really push into it, it's going to show itself to be true. You had yeah. said earlier that he was mad, he was an atheist, yep. but he was mad at God for creating the world. Yeah. So we had to know somebody created the world. That's what he couldn't resolve in his yeah, mind. Yeah. He just didn't want it to be God. Yeah. <laughs> A supreme being. Yep. But yep. what was interesting is the people that God put in his path were mm -hmm. also the people he needed to meet. Yep. You know, it's God God is patient. Yep. You know. God plays the long game for sure. God plays the long game, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and his acknowledgement that God kept on pursuing him. Yep. And he knew it. That he, he didn't pursue God. Right. Uh, initially, God kept on pursuing him. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and, that, and, and, that, and, and that, 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 that's what it tells us in the Bible, right? Absolutely. I mean, uh, that's God the gospel. His, right? God draws yeah. his own. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Let's look at some of his uh, theology. Uh, mere Christianity was probably one of the most succinct, I guess you'd say, um, defenses. Piper quoted uh, in his book, uh, quoting Piper, rather, he says, he devoted his whole life to defending and adorning what he called mere Christianity. Anybody know what that title means, mere Christianity? Does it mean like it's just something small or something different? What does he mean by mere Christianity? Anybody know? Well, he was boiling it down to like what found fundamental things apply to whether you're Catholic or yep. Protestant, really just base level yes. issues. Well, it started, started out as a radio show, right? Or something like that? or not, or a, Yeah, no, but yeah. I'm, I'm just talking about oh, the yeah. title, and specifically the word yeah. mere. And Steve, yeah, that's exactly right. It's it's the pure form of Christianity, like what it, what it really actually is. And I think he defines it in here like, you know, they were called Christians at Antioch because they followed the teaching of the disciples. That's, you know, that's what we are. So it's in its purest form. Um, and so it's not, it's not a belittling title at all. It is uh, actually one that says, you know, in its purest and simplest, truest form, it, it's, it's the foundation of everything. Um, he wrote in another book, The Problem of Pain, I've believed myself to be restating ancient and orthodox doctrines. I've tried to assume nothing that is not professed by all baptized and communicating Christians. He believed that when one looks at Christianity across the centuries, it has an astounding unity, which has great apologetic power. 
This is Lewis writing now. He says, I, I, was, I myself was first led into reading the Christian classics almost accidentally as a result of my English studies. Again, God's sovereignty, right? He's the foremost expert in, in English literature, and so he finds himself, unfortunately, reading English theologians. Some such as Hooker, Herbert, of course, we talked about, Taylor, Bunyan. I read because they are themselves the great English writers. Others, such as Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Dante, because they were influences, he says. They are, you will note, a mixed bag, representatives of many churches, climates, and ages. And that brings us to a yet another reason, reason for reading them. The divisions of Christendom are undeniable and are by some of these writers most fiercely expressed. But if any man is tempted to think, as one might be tempted who has read only contemporaries, that Christianity is a word of so many meanings that it means nothing at all, he can learn beyond all doubt by stepping out of his own century that that is not so. Measured against the ages, mere Christianity turns out to be no insipid interdenominational transparency, but something positive, self-consistent, inexhaustible, so unmistakable, the same, recognizable, not to be evaded, the odor which is death to us until we allow it to become life. I know, for I saw it, and well, our enemies know it. That unity of us confined by going out of his own age. You have to now get to the great level viaduct which crosses the ages and which looks so high from the valleys, so low from the mountains, so narrow compared to the swamps, and so broad compared to the sheep tracks. His point saying, it's not only just the purest form that we've received, it is historically orthodox. He says, if you want to know how true it is, get out of your own age. Right? He talks about um, chronological snobbery and our idea of reading. That if we're reading something from this century or somebody who's still alive or the latest, greatest book, the latest, greatest author, therefore it must be true. And he said he was guilty of that. Um, but he says, don't be guilty of chronological summary. Get out of your age. Read what the church fathers said. Read the apostles. Read the history. Right. So, um, for Lewis, it was about the search for truth because truth exists in historic Orthodox Christianity. He says, above all, you must be asking which door is the true door. For Lewis, especially as a literary expert, he thought the evidence of the authenticity of the Gospels was just too good. He's like, I've read myths. The Gospels are not myths. And he knew that not, for, not even from a believer perspective, from a literature expert perspective. He's like, these are not myths. I can show you myths. <laughs> I deal with myths all the time. These are not them. And famously, I'll read us perhaps the most famous passage in mere Christianity where he is talking about uh, who people say Jesus Christ is. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, meaning Jesus. People would say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Sound familiar? Mm -hmm. Today, right? That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or he was a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, 
where you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Mic drop. Anybody know what that's referred to? The, the three says liar, lunatic, and Lord. Three else. Yeah. The trilemma, right? I was talking with a guy at a party, and he actually knew what that was. I was getting into all of that, and he kind of gave me that look like, He's like the trilemma. So, non-believers, if, if they're well-read, they'll read C.S. Lewis and they know this. But what do we think of that? Liar, lunatic, and Lord. What are some thoughts that are resonating when you hear that famous passage from mere Christianity? Is that true? Do you think it's a good sound argument? Well, I know the religious leaders of, of uh, 2,000 years ago thought it was true because they killed him before. <laughs> well, which one did they think he was? They thought he was, uh, you know, <laughs> a devil. <laughs> Maybe A and B, right? Yeah, A and B, right. You thought he was a liar and a lunatic. Yeah. Okay. okay. Definitely. Yeah. Other thoughts? I think it's a great art of critical thinking whenever you read anything, not to just take it at face value, but to apply the God-given common sense, reason, and logic inside of us to figure it out. And that's exactly what he was applying to it. He was taking the claims that are yeah. in the Bible and just applying yeah. the general rules of logic and figuring it out. That yeah. only that's, that's like the key right there. Because we, we focus on the trilemma, which is great. But also, <coughs> Lewis's point was, no, no, no. He, he, it's his words. Mm -hmm. He didn't leave any other options right. for us. And so when somebody says, well, I believe Jesus was a nice teacher but I can't believe he's God. It's like, okay, well, let's see what Jesus said about Jesus, right? It's not just your opinion, right? Lewis is pointing us back to the Gospels themselves. He didn't leave any other option for us. He, I think it's a lost art, too, because the people who are not doing it very well these days are actually the people who are people who believe in atheism or, or, uh, or evolution. Because if you take that same study method, and you just apply critical thinking and, and take the logic to the next step in its application, you would discover that the very thing that they're believing in, when it's applied, mm -hmm. leads to not having any purpose in life, not having any hope right. after death. You know, but it, it's easy for us to spit out rhetoric, yeah. but to actually analyze it critically through the glass of reason, logic, and yeah. application is a little hard. Yeah, and that's what guys like Lewis push us to do, right? And do we, do we believe in Christianity because we sincerely believe it's true? Or is it more emotional? Or is it more... Steve, you're going to say that? If we're going to use that argument, we just, I think, need to be aware that it requires, like, a number of premises that the, the person yeah. needs to kind of, like, get, like, sufficiency of Scripture, the historical accounts of, like, Jesus was a real person. Yep. I think that that's where yep. your attacks are going to come from, like, not on the argument itself, but, yep. oh, well... If these other things, you know, how do you know that those are true for this to be a sound argument? So, yeah, just something to kind of be prepared and aware for. Yeah, absolutely. Very true. Yeah, because we could say, well, you know, what Jesus said about himself, and then the argument is, well, I don't care because you know I don't true? believe the Gospels. So, <laughs> yeah, something to realize. But if we're going to believe the Gospels, we have to have to understand what they say about him. Yeah. Um, do we do this? Do we examine our own beliefs critically? Or should we? I guess that's a bigger question. Should we examine our beliefs critically in this way? Listen to Paul. Yeah. 
Yeah, the Apostle Paul did. Yeah. He also thought about the, um, the differences, I think I read it in Piper's version, but the differences among Christians, right? Anybody ever talk to um, someone who wasn't a Christian and one of the bullets in their gun is going to be, you know, look at you guys. There are so many denominations. There are so many differences of the, uh, of so many versions of the truth. You guys don't even know the truth. And you're telling me to believe in the truth. So what's the truth? Right? Because look at you guys. There's so many differences. How, do, how would we respond to that? where work like mere Christianity actually comes in handy because it yeah. pushes past those as smoke screens. Yep. Yeah. I think that Bible verse where Paul says, you know, um, while we're all acting in grace with our differences, there's unity in our essentials and the liberty in the non-essentials. So being able to have the conversation and, and put your foundation on your essentials first and then learn yeah. where the grace gets distributed yeah. at. So wouldn't you say that isn't science all wrong because scientists often disagree? <laughs> yeah, it's a good it's a good a good conversation starter, a good thought continuer for sure. Absolutely, Ron. They can't all be true. They all make truth claims. Truth is exclusive by nature, so they cannot. And so narrow-minded. <laughs> is that a, a true statement? <laughs> <laughs> is that true? What about Lewis's point of getting out of our own century, mm-hmm. right? The reality is, guys, that there is a consistent body of Christian truth that is unified from the time of the apostles through the church fathers all the way up through the early church and you know all of that. There really is. Sure, there are divisions on some other things, baptism, whatever else you want to say, and there are heresies, right? But how do people know heresy in the first place? Because it differed from the established truth. Right? So again, he says the divisions of Christendom are undeniable. But if any man is tempted to think that Christianity is a word of so many meanings that it means nothing, he can learn beyond all doubt by stepping out of his own century. So read. Read the church fathers. Read the early church documents. Read the creeds. And read what continues to this day. I mean, the middle, the central, the, 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 the core doctrines of Christianity stand firm. Who is Jesus? How are we saved? What's the word of God? All of that stuff, right? So good things to keep in mind. Don't get distracted by smoke screens, as someone said, right? It's like, yeah, sure. We can squabble about other things, you know, the color of the carpet or the style of our worship music or modes of baptism or whatever else, but it's not the main, the main thing. Okay, more stuff. He talked about... Joy, with a capital J, or as one author put it in a wonderful book, C.S. Lewis and the Christian Worldview, this guy, Michael Peterson, um, he called it transcendent desire, meaning a desire that is not fulfilled by anything here, that goes beyond everything that we feel because we're human. Um, Lewis called this the search for joy and, and the preoccupation with that was the central story of his life. So talk about what a man's about. He just told us. He said it's the central story of his life. Um, He says this. uh, The reader who... uh, Look no further. In a sense, the central story of my life is about nothing else. For those who are still disposed to proceed... 
if you're, in other words, if you're still reading this book, it's on page 19, so I hope so. I will only underline the quality common to these three experiences that he talked about revolving around desire. It's an unsatisfied desire which is itself more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, with a capital J, which here is a technical term and must be sharply distinguished both from happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them, the fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. That you're connecting with something that is deeper than yourself. Lewis found that, and he called it joy. And he again called it uh, connecting to something else. There's a beautiful part at the end of this book. He says, but what's the conclusion of joy? For after all, that is the story that this has mainly been about. To tell you the truth, the subject has lost nearly all interest for me since I became a Christian. I cannot, indeed, complain, like Wordsworth, that the visionary gleam has passed away. I believe, if the thing were at all worth re recording, that the old stab, the old bittersweet, has come to me often and as sharply since my conversion and as any time of my life whatsoever. But I now know that the experience considered as the state of my own mind, had never had the kind of importance I once gave it. It was valuable. Here's why. It was valuable only as a pointer to something other and outer. So he's saying that that preoccupation that I had with joy itself, once I was converted, right, he realized that that's what joy was pointing to. So the preoccupation with joy itself then fell away. When we're lost in the woods, and the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who, he who first cries, look, the whole party gathers around and stares. But when we have found the road and are passing signposts every few miles, we're not going to stop and stare. They will encourage us, and we shall be grateful to the authority that set them up. But we shall not stop and stare, or not much, not on this road. Though they're pillars of silver and their lettering of gold, we would be at Jerusalem. Again, he paints this picture of being lost in the woods and, you know, the first sign that you see that shows you the way, you're all excited about it, you look at it, you rejoice, but then as you keep going, you know, you, oh, it's another signpost, great, great, great. I want to get to where we're going. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stand around and stare at a signpost. I want to get to where I'm going. So he compared joy to that kind of transcendence and he realized once he became a Christian, it's not just that. It doesn't stop there. You have to get to God in order to have that. He said it's not in those signs, but it's through those signs. Um, I just want to read a couple more quotes, and then we'll talk about some stuff. Another very, very famous quote from him, this time in The Weight of Glory, talking about sometimes when we do stop short of finding true joy in God. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing no, that wasn't it. 26. Yeah. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would be that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's crazy to think about that. The idea that, no, I'm content right here. 
making mud pies in a slum. He's like, you're crazy. God is offering you a holiday at the sea, and you're content with this. You're content with, what did he say, talking about uh, fooling about with drink and sex and materialism and all this stuff. He's like, that just points to the greater reality, and you're stuck back here at these things. It's the reality of what it points to. It's also known as uh, the argument from desire. That we have a desire for greater things than something that can only be fulfilled by this world, right? Which I'm pretty sure is the quote that Ronald started us on. Let's see if I can find it. What'd you say? I think Ron can quote it. Do you think Ron can quote it? Um, Christians are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, satisfy it that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, to never despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, to never mistake them for something else of which they're only a kind or a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Aslan's country. Aslan's country. <laughs> farther up and farther in. Yeah, farther up and farther in. So what do we think? What are, what are some things resonating in your brains now that I've dumped on you some more famous C.S. Lewis quotes and concepts? My favorite quote is in The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis wrote that Pain is God's megaphone to awaken a deaf world. Mm. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Mm. Meaning what? Tell us, go a little farther with that. I don't know. Tell us. What is pain doing to us? What is it? How does it arouse us in our deafness? It's like pinching part of your soul, but sometimes gets numb by just general and different activities and entertainment and things that numb us to feeling the part of our soul that actually comes alive when you really do that thing where you integrate with yeah. your faith. Yeah. And pain just kind of pinches it a little bit yeah. as you feel it. There was, a, there was another quote in Problem of Pain. I think he said, my argument against God was that the world was so cruel and unjust. And then he said, but where had I gotten the idea of so cruel and unjust? I can't call a line crooked unless I have some idea yeah. of a straight line. Yeah. He was too smart for his own good. <coughs> yeah. Uh, I saw one blogger uh, go on the, the mud pies by this, the seashore quote and said basically it's idolatry, of course, right? That we are stopping short of God's greater blessings because we're messing around with his gifts, right, and stopping there. And he said, what is your mud pie? What is, what, is, what is the thing that you get stuck on instead of continuing on for the greater glory of God? It could be any idol that we get stuck on. And it robs us of uh, the greater glory and greater joy in God himself. 
So yeah, so what do we seek? Do we seek joy itself? Or do we seek where joy points to? I thought of a scene in, uh, I guess it was one of the line, which is the wardrobe, right, where, or Narnia, right, where the Edmund, I guess it was, he was, was uh, deceived by the white witch with the Turkish delight. Right? And he just kept eating the Turkish delight and got deceived, right? I Same watched that movie when it first came out and it took me 10 years to realize like what he was, <laughs> the whole movie was about. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely not alone there. Yeah, Steve. I think one of the most kind of pressing things for the time in which we live now is that the world is like trying to eat this a little bit by offering things that have a ring of transcendence to them. Yeah. Like, you know, uh, you know, be a good person by exhibiting these virtues. And, yeah. and they're things that look outside of ourselves, but they stop way short of where God's calling us. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. As a little bit of, it's kind of that itching ears kind of thing. Mm -hmm. that people will want to hear with their itching ears. And God's put that desire for truth in us right so when we hear something and it kind of resonates in our soul a little bit in that transcendent part our ears go up and we're like yeah maybe that's it and sometimes we sometimes people fall for it right but it's again a cheap imitation a mirage as uh, lewis would call it i like the signpost in the woods yeah and, and then the continuing you were you were saying about following the signpost yeah we just went on a trip to north carolina when you get into virginia the first thing you see is Roanoke, 240 miles, <laughs> and then Roanoke, 225 miles, yeah. and then Roanoke, 176 miles, and yeah. on and on it you goes. You don't care about the signs anymore. Yeah, you go, no, <laughs> Just no get more. to Roanoke. <laughs> yeah, then, you know, and then you finally get the Roanoke, like, woo -hoo. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's very true. Yeah. Yeah, his, his um, metaphors and imagery there is very powerful. Yeah. Let's look at another thing of Mr. Lewis and his rationalism. He approached faith from a rationalistic uh, perspective, meaning logic and reason, as we've already seen. Perhaps central was his thoughts about the law of non-contradiction, meaning that something can't be true and not true at the same time. It can't be both A and B, like this mic or music stand can't be a music stand and an asparagus. It has to be one or the other, right? <laughs> Mr. Sproul was neither. big in the... What's that? Or neither. Or neither, yes. <laughs> well, what about quantum theory? Oh, here we go. <laughs> but this is where his value, really, I mean, of course, with desire, that was uh, another big con contribution to apologetics. <laughs> but also this, the idea of, of rationalism and pushing back on that. Some other poetic writing of his. I'll read a little snippet here. Um, he says, if we swallow the scientific cosmology as a whole, that excludes a rational, personal God, then not only can I not fit in Christianity, but I cannot even fit in science. If minds are wholly dependent on brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry, in the long run, on the meaningless flux of atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of these minds should have any more significance than the sound of wind through the trees. And this, to me, is the final test. He's like, okay, cool. If we don't have a rational God, if science is just science and there's no purpose to it, then those things floating around in your brain called atoms, they mean nothing to you. It's just like wind through the trees. So he's like, it's got to be more, there's got to be more to it. Um, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, 
but because by it, I see everything else. Think about that. Think of your, your driving analogy. I think of driving to Florida, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're just like begging for the sun to come up. You're just like, it's getting brighter, it's getting brighter, it's getting brighter. And the sun comes up, and that's a reality. But how also do you know the sun comes up? Because now I can see everything. <laughs> I'm finally not driving in the dark anymore. So it's that rational, logical kind of overlay that he brings, kind of the argument from reason, if you will, for Christianity. What do we think about that? Do we have a rationalism-based faith? Do we have a? Are we afraid of logic, as evangelical Protestants to say, "No, no, I just believe because I believe, because I feel it." It's a leap of faith. Is there a place for logic and reason within our faith, faith, yes. or is it just? <laughs> Angelo says yes. It doesn't sell as well. It doesn't sell as well, right? Yeah. Doesn't write many Jesus is my boyfriend songs or <laughs> things like that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, because we're tempted to go for the sugar water, we're tempted to go for the emotionalism and all that other stuff. But we, you know, and the world is capitalized on that. You know, that's where our opponents are because they see that and they're just like, you guys are just doing that because it makes you feel good. You have to be able to explain certain aspects logically, like the concept of morality or the concept of, of yeah. eternity or things like that. Yeah. Those things have to be rationalized for us to be able to understand them. Yep. Yep. And a lot of that, too, is not necessarily us having every detail laid out like a C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Right. But sometimes one of the best things to do is for someone else to explain their position clearly. Like, you're just seeking to understand their position. Mm-hmm. But, like, going with morality, like, you know, just keep trying to figure out how that they can have an idea that morality doesn't exist. Right. Or that morality is cultural. Or mm-hmm. just, like, try to understand that. And you'll find out that it's not as airtight as they think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should seek to understand, you know, the other the other side as well. Yeah. Yeah. Ronald. It's a big industry too. The guys that are in the new atheism you know, oh, yeah. they write a ton of books and they attack the low hanging fruit, but yeah, the the had the best quote, he said, I don't believe in unicorns and I haven't written any books on the subject. <laughs> <laughs> so why do I care so much? If God doesn't exist, what does what difference does it make? Yeah. I said that to that lady who always controls my blog. I'm going to write, post an article. And yeah, if you don't like this, why are you coming? I was like, why are you so angry? Like, I don't, just, I don't get it. Because the unicorn enthusiasts are placing moral demands on it. <laughs> right, right. right. That's true. I don't get it. Anyway, there's a combination, right? We are not uh, all emotion in our faith, and we're certainly not all logic in our faith. It's, there's a balance. There's a tension. There's both. That being said, there were a couple doctrinal differences that if you ever do get deep into a discussion with somebody who knows C.S. Lewis, they're going to push back. I was on a podcast and uh, I started, as soon as I quoted C.S. Lewis, I knew they were going to nail me on it and they did because the guy knew C.S. Lewis too because he he went to Liberty and he was a deconverted ex-evangelical and he's like, you're quoting C.S. Lewis and, you know, he's got major doctrinal differences and I'm like, okay, fair enough. But a couple of them, he was not Reformed necessarily. He actually didn't believe the Reformation. He thought the Reformation was unnecessary, and it could have been avoided. He never really explained why he wasn't Reformed, and he also remained in the Church of England throughout his uh, kind of life. And the Church of England is kind of its own brand of Christianity. It's kind of halfway between 
Roman Catholicism and Protestantism, but probably more towards Roman Catholicism. So he really, really didn't expound a, a reformed position. And he had some somewhat squishy views on the sovereignty of God as it came to free will and how that worked out. And you just really, you just couldn't tell. Like sometimes you really couldn't, like what do you believe as far as free will? Especially when you get into the problem of pain. He talks about that a lot. Um, he was not a biblical inerrantist. What's an inerrantist? Without error. So he actually believed that the Bible had errors. He thought, maybe this was because he was a literature expert, right? He thought that when we get there in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says, uh, this generation shall not pass away until you know, they see these things, right? And he said, well, that didn't happen. So that was a mistake. So he would, he would stand on that and say that was a mistake. That was an example of a mistake in Scripture, which we would not. Because I would say that generation did see those signs that were there. So, but we'll talk about that when we get when we get there in <laughs> September, probably. <laughs> I just did my whole preaching schedule up there. So, in case you want to, before I erase it, you can see where we're. Going. Um, he also had kind of a squishy view, and uh, I use the word he had sometimes an indirect view of salvation through Christ. Um, when his wife was very sick, he was in Greece, and he was tempted to pray to Christ through Apollo the healer for his wife to be healed. And he had some kind of squishy views on that, that he still kind of thought he was praying to Christ ultimately, but maybe there was an indirect way he could do that. Right? Did you say Apollo? Apollo the healer. I'm not really sure even who that was. Yeah, I imagine one of the Greek... Yeah. This is yeah. an example of his first love of mythology and classic English literature yeah. that kind of seeped in a little bit into his theology. And you could see it most prominently in The Last Battle when the, the Calendon is allowed into Aslan's country uh, preemptively and ultimately. And it, it, he's kind of wink wink nudge nudging about yeah. election, but it's never explicitly stated. Right. It, yeah. He was a little all over the map, but yeah. you can't throw the baby out the bathwater just like everyone else was You saying. can't. You really can't. And, and that's it. it. He just didn't expand on these things, right? He was not an expositor, right? He didn't, he didn't go to a passage of Scripture and chop it up and say, this is where I am and this is what this means in context, right? He didn't deal explicitly with a whole lot of texts. His value wasn't, this is Piper, his value wasn't in biblical exegesis. His value definitely lies elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, he was never a master of hermeneutics, which is why yeah. you say that there was a, an inerrancy thing. I can see where you would have been that. Yeah. But he was a master, especially of his time, after we had had Kant and, and Nietzsche and some other you know, individuals who had come in philosophy, where he really mastered was the integration of philosophy and correctly defining how God engineered minds and feelings and how that was fulfilled in the salvation complex through Christ. Like that was his niche. Was that old adage, know yourself and then and then know God. The, knowing the nature of humans and studying the nature of the divine through literature was where he really excelled at. Mm. More is, I mean, he wouldn't be the guy that I would go to for an expository. Yeah, and that's important to know that, right? Sometimes we can just think C.S. Lewis and we see so many people throwing around C.S. Lewis quotes and things like that. We've also got to know that, you know, maybe we shouldn't. Go to him for a biblical exegesis. You're not going to really find it in the first place. But 
know where people are strong and know where they give value to. Mm -hmm. And again, not saying that, you know... And that's with everyone. That is with everyone. With all of them, yeah. Absolutely. Every every person. Yep. He never set out to be a pillar of the faith. He was an author. Yeah. And just as he progressively chased, you know, the famous quote of the hounds of heaven were pursuing him, you know, just as he eventually arrived at the conclusion logically and emotionally and mentally that God is real and Jesus is who he says he was, he carried a lot of that over into his writing. So he never set out to be an apologist. He was an accidental apologist. Yeah. But a very gifted man by the Lord and and his writing still impacts people today. Yeah. But he was never like a, he was never going to be a wit, you know, he never set out to be. Well, he wasn't a pastor. He was a professor, right? Wasn't a pastor. He was, yeah, he wasn't a pastor, he was a professor, right? Yeah. 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 Medieval literature. Probably the foremost expert in medieval English literature. Which is a a really interesting point of, again, how God intervenes in church history because the gospel does not change. It is static. But human culture does change and it's fluid. And it was a great moment in the church history to have someone who was a a great master of understanding philosophy and human nature to come Mm. in at that time specifically. Like it was... You can look back and, and see where God just kind of plants the right. Erasmus was the same way, but and a lot of people in the church fathers were like God didn't make the master of all, but He made the master of that moment that really needed to be. Yeah, like that, that's a good that point. Big brick. In I that, like that. The master the of the moment and the timing that we needed. Yeah. Yeah, and He's still serving us well today. Yeah. Any other closing thoughts? Encouraging Fine. remarks. This isn't something I find it t- a little hard to take at face value, but by his own words, he didn't set out to write Christian allegory. Like, yeah. he, he, I forget the exact like statement, but he basically kind of refuted that. That I mean, yeah. because his writings were like really, I mean, they were way more on the nose than like a Tolkien was. Yeah. But he, according to him, that wasn't what he was doing. Yeah. Which so. exactly when you watch everything, just Aslan. Sacrifice and all right. that, you're just like, no, dude. <laughs> it has to be. Well, you can yeah. see some of him working out things that he hasn't quite figured out yet yeah. in writing. It's a good point, too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because, like, when you write, you can only you can work it out in a novel form, and that's something that you haven't really given on words for yet. Yeah. I think he writes as someone. Yeah, he began writing as someone who was enjoying the adventure, not really knowing exactly where he was going. Yeah. It. You know, it's just like, man, did he travel that road well. And the adventure was just so great. Yeah. He didn't always know where he was ending up on it, though. Yeah. He's in the letters were amazing, though. Yeah. What's yes. that? The screw tape letters were Yeah, really Melanie and I listened to that in the car. Yeah. yeah. It was, uh, it Anybody was wild. else read a science fiction series? I did. I read it. Yeah. Is that the Out of the Sound and Planet yeah. stuff? Yeah. yeah. Really I haven't read it. This, I, uh, I got sucked into this longer than I should have, but I mean, just the writing of his, it's kind of the autobiography of his early years and stuff, like, you're there, like, you are in his house, like, you can smell the books, you can, it's just, he's so good in, in that, in his writing, you know? kind of like George Herbert, right, which is why he resonated with him so much, we talked about that last time, talking about just finding the words, like, spending the time to think about these words that reflect the glory of the gospel, in the depth of God, you know, so. Okay, well, let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you so much for 
men like C.S. Lewis, and, and as we sit here in 2022 America, and we, we are thankful for him, Lord, we pray that you will continue to use men like this to stimulate truth in our minds and in our hearts. We pray that as we read your word, Lord, that you will connect these dots. We pray that as we have conversations uh, with others and as we share the gospel, uh, Lord, that we would be able to stand on the truth and the historicity and the orthodoxy of mere Christianity. And Lord, we just thank you so much that you haven't just given us a faith that is all emotion or really just all logic and reason. We thank you for both, that it is a faith that is transcendent, that goes into the deepest part of us and transcends all knowledge, but also one that is imminent and that you are here with us in a very personal and loving and powerful way. And so we thank you for who you are. Pray that you would strengthen us as we seek to mature as disciples. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Who do we got next week? Oh, Mr. Spurge. Yeah. Oh, that's my dad's favorite. I'm looking forward to that Mr. one. Mr. Spurge. Yeah. Yeah. I have to gain about 100 pounds and smoke cigars. And get gout. Don't forget the gout. And the gout. Yeah, you get gout. And grow an awesome beard, which I.